creator of Star Wars. From the director of Cocoon. A world is awakening. Why, with the strength of my great army, can you not find one little child? Hello. And welcome to Media Evil, a medieval pop culture podcast, where we talk about how medieval and medieval-inspired movies, TV, and books depict the medieval world. What do they get right? What do they get wrong? And what do they tell us about how modern people see the medieval past? I'm Sarah Itchdecker, a medieval historian, and today I'm joined by a returning guest, Elizabeth Bonneman. But today, instead of discussing Doctor Who, which is what we usually discuss together, we'll be talking about 1988 film Willow. So, Elizabeth, welcome. Thanks for coming back. It's always great to be here. Always great to have you. Why don't you tell the listeners, in case they have not heard you before, a little bit about yourself and about why you wanted to talk about this particular movie. Yeah, I'm probably, longtime listeners will best know me as Media Evil's Doctor Who correspondent, but what you may not know about me is that sometimes I watch other things. (laughs) I thought of this movie when we, the last Doctor Who serial we covered was the 1989 serial Battlefield, which happened to include Jean Marsh as an evil sorceress queen. Mm-hmm. And that reminded me of this movie in which Jean Marsh plays an evil sorceress queen. <laughs> Indeed. So we've got that as our, uh, our connector between the films, as uh, Jean Marsh <laughs> as Queen Bavmorda. So, yeah, evil, evil sorceress queen. She does it. It's it's a role she plays very well. Yeah, no, she is great. And this film also stars Warwick Davis as Will, Willow Oofgood, Val Kilmer as Madame Mardigan, and Joanne Whaley as Sorsha. And apparently the two of them met on the set of this film and got married. They were together until uh, they got divorced in 1996. Yeah. Love was found in uh-huh. the set of this film. I, I think it was the Dust of Broken Hearts that did it. It was probably that, yeah. <laughs> it's like, damn it, it worked. I like to think that that guy also then adopted that cat because of that, but we'll get to that. Yeah. <laughs> so let's get into it with the enumeratio or recap where we can delve into the film Willows. We begin with learning that there are seers who have foretold that there is a child who will be born who will bring an end to the reign of the evil queen Bavmorda. So she's had all of the pregnant women in the kingdom seized, and uh, they have this child who has been born, who has the magic birthmark, I guess, that demonstrates that, that she is the one who is going to be this fated child. And the midwife then ends up helping the infant escape. We get all this. Uh, we get all this exposition in a text crawl, and it's at this point that I think it's worth noting that this movie was written by George Lucas. And it Yes. And it shows in a lot of ways. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, yeah, so yeah, written by George Lucas and directed by Ron Howard. Yeah. Yeah, interesting, interesting combination. George Lucas among you know, in Star Wars is great, but George Lucas is in particular I find um bad at writing romance. He is. He very much is. <laughs> Hold uh, me like you held me by the lake. It's Naboo. Also, so much of like so much of this movie is like, okay, okay, he's crossed Star Wars with Lord of the Rings. This is interesting. Yes, absolutely. Like, that is very will, much the vibe of this movie. 
Willow is a is is a cross between Frodo, Sam, and Luke Skywalker. Yeah, Mad Mardigan is a cross between Han Solo and Aragorn. General Kale is very much Darth Vader. <laughs> oh my god, yes, with his like skull um, helmet. Bav Morda is Palpatine, right down to getting like the what I can only describe as Palpatine face later. Yes, yes, <laughs> as she gets force lightning. Yeah. <laughs> um, the uh, Rule and Frangine are both Pippin and Mary and the droids. <laughs> yep, yep. Sorsha is very what? much Princess Leia. Yeah. George Lucas does not do subtle. No, no, he does not. That has never been, that has never, subtle has never been his vibe. No. And indeed is not in this film either. Yeah. Eric okay. is, Eric is a cross between Lando and Eowyn. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, but I'm, yeah. It's, so it's, it's a- Eowyn's the brother, right? I'm, Aomer is the brother. Aomer, yes, yeah. thank you. Yeah, it's it's they have the same name. It's yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. So yeah, and, so, and Sorsha is a cross between Princess Leia and Aowen with the like added bit that like she was evil for a little bit. Uh huh. Yeah. So. so she's also got like a bit of Darth Vader in there. Yeah, yeah, just little sh- little shades of Darth Vader. Which is, I I will admit. An interesting twist, George. Yeah, yeah. Kudos. <laughs> and she's she's an interesting character. I have some critiques, but she has interesting elements. Mm-hmm. The midwife goes off with this baby. She's pursued by these weird pig dog situations. Yeah, yeah. They call them hounds, but um, that does not uh, quite convey what they look like. <laughs> yeah, which I actually kind of like that the film is just very casual about in terms of describing them about the fact that they're just like, yeah, they just call them hounds and you look at them and they're like, mm, I, I've got a dog and that is not a dog. No. We've heard the no. dog and that, that, that's no dog. <laughs> that's, no. There's like, as I said, there's some like pig in there. There's maybe a little like large rat in there. It's a lot happening. Yeah, there's, it's, there's sure something. <laughs> Yes. You, you do take one look at them and get evil, though. Oh, like, yeah, absolutely. So, so they do that job well. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, and George Lucas, I think, is good at, like, creature design. Yeah. Well, except when it verges into anti-Semitism, as in the prequels. But Fair. other than that, George Lucas is Fair. good at creature design. The midwife ends up basically sacrificing herself to save the child, so she kind of drops the child. She puts the child on a little raft in the river, Shades of Exodus. Mm-hmm. And uh, shades? It, it, shades. It, it, she puts it in a basket, sends it down the river. It ends up in the bulrushes where she's adopted by a family. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's um it, again not subtle, right? The entire no. No. opening concept is Exodus with like a little like hint of Jesus. A little. In terms of these specifics dynamics surrounding the goal of like finding and killing this child is a little more similar to massacre of the innocent to the massacre of the innocents essentially bav morta's trying to pull a herod here yeah yeah it's in terms of her motivations she's more herod than pharaoh Mm -hmm. and then other than that it's just like unsettling exodus yeah (laughs) these two children see the baby and rush to go tell their father 
And we learn at this point that the baby they can very clearly identify is, as it's presented in this film, a different group of people so that the people who find the baby are the Nelwyn and the baby is identified as being the, as being of the Daikini, which are the big people. Yeah. Yeah. All of the Nelwyn are played by actors with dwarfism, which. Yes. The Lord of the Rings, like they, they did their hobbits by like using clever camera tricks to make Elijah Wood look even shorter than he already is. But with this, like they just cast all actors with dwarfism, which is, you know, if this, this movie was made, uh, I think 13 years before fellowship. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So, so that is, that is like another interest, like an interesting way to get your Hobbit like figures. Right. And also how, you know, it's nice that they actually get to like hire, you know, people with dwarfism. Right. Yeah. Usually, usually like if you have a character with dwarfism, like it's either Warwick Davis or Peter Dinklage, or if it's a very old movie, Billy Barty. And otherwise you don't really see, many actors with dwarfism in anything yeah and here it's like it's great like there's a lot of there's a lot of people who got work from this movie who probably don't get hired for you know who are not considered right for as many roles yeah actually i think george lucas did hire a lot of people with dwarfism for for an earlier film and i and because the first movie i remember warwick davis from is he plays the most prominent of the Ewoks in the in Return of the Jedi. Yes, he's and specifically that is the one that like Leia came from. I think. Yeah, he's he's specifically the one that Leia first befriends when when they're on Endor. Yeah, and I will actually add to that for the cast that I uh, that I did forget to comment that uh, it also does include as somebody who's like not a super important character, but as a you know somebody among the Nelwyn, Kenny Baker, who is R two D two. Oh, I. I didn't catch that. I did not catch that watching again, the film. We, I just caught that in the Wikipedia cast list. That, then again, like, we wouldn't recognize Kenny Baker on site. <laughs> right, yeah, because he's R2-D2, right? right? So I don't actually, so I don't actually know what he looks like. So I no idea. Know, did not inherently, and so I did not catch that. But I did see that in the cast list, which was cool. Yeah. That he is, that he is in this. So they find this baby and we also learned that the baby is not Willow's only problem that, uh, you know, his kids have, that his kids have found this baby that they now want them to adopt. That we uh-huh. also learned that he owes money to the prefect. The prefect yells at him that he's planting seeds because you should only buy the seeds from me. It turns out he kind of gathered them in the forest. Mm-hmm. And the prefect is really out to screw with Willow and his family and ultimately take his land. Yeah. Burglecut, the, the prefect, is kind of a bully. Yeah. He's just a dick. Burgle cuts a real jerk. Willow is like, we, ca- we can't, de- we have enough problems. We cannot deal with this baby. Under no circumstances will anyone in this family fall in love with this baby. And of course, <laughs> very quick, like that is, that is the actual line. Uh, and very quickly, like his wife just utterly ignores him, uh, Kaya, which is great that she's just like, I, that she just like does not listen to him about any uh-huh. of this. She's just no. like, yeah, it's a baby. We're taking the baby. Yep. Uh, <laughs> the children are like, cool baby. And as soon as he holds yeah. the baby, he too absolutely starts to fall for the baby. Oh, yeah. Yeah. They decide basically that they're adopting the baby. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, Willow is also hopeful that things will turn around in that the High Aldwin at this upcoming festival is going to be choosing his next apprentice. 
and he is confident that it's going to be him. The High Aldwin is played by Billy Barty, mm-hmm. who is before the rise of Warwick Davis in the 80s, was Hollywood's go-to actor with dwarfism. Right, right. So he is the, the kind of elder figure and is, uh, and is a sorcerer yeah. and is supposed to be choosing an apprentice in advance of, the, you know, of that process. Willow puts on his magic show, which is clearly just basically like sleight of hand style magic. Mm-hmm. It's pretty good. Yeah, yeah, he's doing a good job. He's pretty impressive. And he even, you know, has his kind of last showpiece trick, which, you know, it seems at first like it's good, which is that he's going to make a pig disappear. Seems at first to be going well, but then sadly the pig emerges from under the table. Mm-hmm. And Burgolka laughs at him about it because he's a real dick. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so at this point, the High Aldwin has his selection process and kind of goes through this thing where he kind of holds out a hand and says basically, in which finger does power reside? You know, just trust your instincts, go with your gut. They each essentially kind of try and fail willow included and he says yeah i'm not choosing an apprentice this year none of you have proved satisfactory yeah he, he holds out his hand and they each like point to a different finger on the yeah. high aldwin's hand and the high aldwin's like nope 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 yeah <laughs> and this this will come back in terms of the, yeah, the significance of this mm-hmm as they're in the midst of celebrating this festival the wild pig dogs attack we see, you know, people trying to rescue their children. It, uh, you know, Willow in particular kind of goes and rescues his daughter. And they learn that apparently the pig dogs are looking for a baby. Yeah, because, the, because you know, they've been, uh, it's been charging around, like, overturning cradles and such. Yeah, like, like, yeah. It, 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 they get, they can deduce that, like, it's, it's got, like, a specific target in mind right exactly and which is which is really interesting that it's like it's not a scent thing exactly because yeah. if it was a scent thing then presumably if it was uh, entirely a scent thing you would have think you would have thought that they would have actually gone to his house right and found yeah. the baby but you know he goes there and it turns out mm-hmm. kai is there with the baby and is perfectly safe mm-hmm. so it's yeah. not exactly a scent thing it's that they're smart enough that they know specifically that they're looking for a baby and and we get and we get a and we get a scene of the warriors of the village like managing to surround and bring the bring the beast down with spears. Yes, uh, led by Vonkar, who who you know he, he's it's a fairly minor role, but he's shows up later. Yeah, yeah, and you know, and that is something I will also you know add is that I I like that you know this is definitely a group of people right that you know Willow our main character is not a warrior but that there are definitely people among the Nelwins who are warriors you know there's they've got warriors they've got wizards they've got a whole range of different you know skills and abil- and like abilities and jobs among this group of people yeah and and like this is a world that has monsters like even if they don't, right. even if they don't usually target the Nelwyn. Right. And just an interesting difference, I think, from something like the, you know, like the Hobbits, right, where the Hobbits seem like they really just want to, like, sit down and eat dinner and uh, (laughs) don't seem very kind of well suited to, you know, being in a battle, right? And it's so unexpected that, you know, that, like, Hobbits would do these things. Yeah. The Nelwyn don't seem quite that way, right? The Nelwyn seem like they're, they're just, you know, a group of people and different people among the Nelwyn, as I said, have, have different kinds of jobs. Yep. So they're, you know, so at this point, Willow is like, all right, I guess we should probably take this baby to the council because clearly they're looking for this baby and this is a problem. Mm -hmm. 
they get to the council. The angry villagers are yelling about whoever, whoever is responsible. They should throw him in the pit. At which point he kind of tries to sneak away. With <laughs> <laughs> He's just like back right. away slowly. <laughs> but the Aldrin sees him and calls him out and you know they explain what the deal is with this baby who the aldwin then decrees that they should take out of their lands to the daikini crossroads and ultimately ends up selecting willow of course as a person who will you know be the caretaker for this child and will take the baby to the crossroads not because of an omen in fact he says the omens up you know there aren't any omens right yeah. the bolt he's got these like magic souls that he's doing something with and the bulls yeah, so tell me nothing he, yeah he's yeah he like he's like i shall consult to the bones and he like casts the bones and then he beckons willow closer and he's like the bones tell me nothing do you care about this child? And 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 Willow's like, yeah. And and then the High Alban announces, the bones have decreed that Willow shall take the child. Yes. Very charming. So he, you know, selects him and they also select a few other warriors, and then yeah. he deputizes Burglecut as the leader of this mission. Yeah, because Burglecut the the first one to volunteer is Willow's best friend Migosh. Yeah. Who's sort of who's sort of like a Sam-like figure. Uh-huh. Um, and and then uh, Vonkar, the best warrior in the village, uh, like, volunteers, because, you know, they'll need protection. Mm-hmm. And Burglecut's like, no, Vonkar, you can't go. Someone has to protect the village. And 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 the High Aldwin's like, hmm, all this uh, in- expedition needs now is a leader. It'll be you, Burglecut. <laughs> and Burglecut's like, Vonkar! Vonkar, please! <laughs> Please, buddy. They go off on their journey. And in this also, the Aldwin talks to Willow about and asks him what his real first instinct was in this trial. And Willow says it was to actually pick his own finger. And the Aldwin says, yeah, that's correct. You have potential, but you lack confidence, which will be the theme, I would say, kind of throughout the film. (laughs) He's Luke Skywalker. And yeah. he also gives him magic acorns that whatever he throws them at will turn to stone. In, in our big Star Wars analogy, I'd call the High Aldwin Ben Kenobi. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. He goes off. He says goodbye to his family. His wife gives him a braid of her hair. Yeah. Which is sweet, even though I think giving people your hair is kind of gross. But that's I mean, really yeah. sweet. It's, it's, a, it's a thing that yeah, people it's a thing. do. It is. It is. And they're instructed that they should give the baby to the first Daikina you see and then hurry home. Mm-hmm. Uh, we also see more of the uh, the Aldwin's omens not being particularly successful, right? <laughs> that he kind of has this bird that he breaks out and says, follow the bird. And then the bird, like, in the, they're like, the bird's just going back to the village. He goes, ignore the bird, follow the river. <laughs> <laughs> it's very silly. They embark to general amusement. The baby does vomit in Burglecut's face. Great. Meanwhile, the queen is very annoyed that they haven't yet managed to find this baby. And in particular, that her daughter, Sorsha, has been, you know, tasked with finding this baby and has been unsuccessful. And uh, she now instructs General Kale, a name that I struggled with. So Kale is actually named after a specific movie critic who didn't like Star Wars. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that's such a George Lucas move it really is 
well, that explains why we can't, this guy has, and, you know, and I guess this is also before the like kale, the vegetable, like yeah. health food craze. Yeah. But I just like, could I, and it is spelled differently, but I just could not like take seriously this guy. He's got like this like skull helmet situation. Uh-huh. And it's like, you know, it is very like the kind of intimidating, you know, Darth Vader-esque sort of figure. Yep. And I'm just like, his name is Kale. <laughs> He and Sorsha are now both tasked with finding this baby. And meanwhile, also, uh, Beth Morda has this advisor who warns that uh, her, that her daughter is going to eventually betray her. And the queen's like, I trust her way more than I trust you. So, like, cool it on your dumb warnings. Yep. They reach the crossroads and all they find are a lot of corpses. Yeah. At first, it seems. Plus one Daikini who is still alive in an iron cage, which I will talk about later in terms of the historical background of okay, these good, uh, I was curious. cages. Yes. This is Mad Mardigan, who uh, really wants to be let out of his cage. He's, you know, I'll take care of the baby. And I will say, so, okay, there are, I believe, three people, you know, young, you know, children. In babies, there are three babies who play the baby. Uh-huh. I believe two twins and one who I guess just looks similar enough. You know, I didn't notice a particular difference They're at any point. They all They're look babies. Like babies. Funny, this episode I think actually will come out immediately, perhaps after another episode, another episode involving like a baby that's being toted around. Uh, ah, nice. Since uh, yeah, another like faded baby. Since I just covered the film Court Jester. I don't know that one. It's uh, like 1955, and it's like a musical comedy. Interesting. Okay. But also involves like a baby who's, you know, the baby who's like, who's like supposed to be the next king, essentially, who's being like toted around at various points. Okay. But yeah, so, you know, we've got this, and I will say like the, they do a good job that, you know, I don't know how they manage this, but like the baby they like shoot the like have a shot of the baby right after Mad Mardigan first like says like I'll take care of this baby and the baby looks so skeptical. Yeah, she's she's got this. She gets this look on her face like, can you believe this guy? Yeah, she's like, uh, uh-uh. like don't don't leave me with him. <laughs> Do not leave me with him. <laughs> like this baby has sass. Uh huh. <laughs> so I'm very impressed also like how they managed to get like these particular facial expressions out of this like. Like I don't know, one year old child, maybe, maybe, uh, maybe. yeah. Certainly Which is of course also yeah, like certainly funny. not old enough to walk, but <laughs> oh no, uh, and also of course funny, right? In that it's one of those things where the baby is technically supposed to be like a newborn baby. I, I we don't know how long that midwife was on the run with her. True, true, and I guess so. Yes, we don't know how long she was on the run, but at the point when we actually see the baby, it's just like we're we're aging up. This, this baby's like a year. This baby's like a year old, basically. Yeah. They continue to essentially kind of try, kind of debate what to do at this point. At which point, Burgle has just like, we're at the crossroads. There's a daikini. Y'all can do what you want. I'm going to fuck home and I'm taking most of the warriors with me. So it's yep. only Willow and Miyash who stay. And Willow basically just kind of continues for now to like sit around at the crossroads in the hopes of finding a better daikini <laughs> to right. take this baby. And he tries to stop some people at some point, then a whole army comes up and he like tries to give the baby to this army and they uh, say, we're going to war, find a woman. Yeah, yeah. And, and we meet uh, one, uh, one of these soldiers in particular, a dashing big blonde man named Eric. Eric, yes. 
who knows Mad Mardigan, and he's like, ah, you got yourself <laughs> locked up in a crow's cage. I knew this would happen someday. Yes, and does not seem to be, yeah, so he is definitely not especially surprised uh, and does not seem to, and, you know, at this point does not give us any additional reason to think that Mad Mardigan is a trustworthy figure. No. Despite that, however, they do eventually decide, all right, I guess we'll give this baby to this guy. They, you know, start like giving him the stuff. At some point, there's like, you know, some like milk, and he's like, oh, is it like, is there milk in there? And he's like, the milk's for the baby. It's like, I would steal from a baby. <laughs> to his credit, he doesn't. <laughs> no, no. He seems, as far as we know, he did put in an effort and uh, he you tried. Know, he tried. And Migosh and Willow start to hurry home. And then Willow sees a tiny man riding on a hawk carrying this baby. And he's like, I stole this baby. It's like, that's my baby. I should note that uh, for some reason, the brownies are French Canadian. (laughs) I stole a baby. (laughs) I don't know why, but they are. And they're great. They're very fun. Yeah. So yeah. So these are the, uh, the brownies who it turns out have captured this baby. The brownies are about two, three inches tall. Yes. And yes. unlike and unlike the Nelwyn, who are like, you know, just actors with dwarfism, the, the brownies are played by like regular sized people, but using camera tricks to make them look especially small. Right, right. And they are, I mean, and they are very, yeah, they're, and, and, they're and very for, small. For 1988, the effects aren't that bad. No, no, they did, they did a fairly decent job, I think, on that. It's funny when, when the brownies, who are two to three inches tall, like, like, are calling the Daikini short people. <laughs> yes. Like, what do you know, shorty? <laughs> it's like, sir, sir. <laughs> and at first, I think you kind of assume that this, uh, you know, baby capture was just general mischief, but you do then soon realize that, in fact, it was uh, quite deliberate as they're taken to their leader, who is the fairly fairy queen, Cherlindria, who explains that, you know, they were supposed to take this baby. This baby is named Laura Dannon. She is the fated, she's a fated baby who's going to overthrow Queen of Morda and that she has chosen Willow as her guardian. And she's very faux Galadriel. Yeah. Oh, very much. Yeah. And, and she's like, and, and, and Willow's like, why me? I'm not a warrior. And, and, and Trilindry is like, she likes you. Yeah. <laughs> she's like, Yep, sorry, like the baby likes you. It's like the baby doesn't uh-huh. like that guy, the baby likes you. Also, the brownies ha- uh, capture Willow and Migosh and tie them to the ground. Like, very, it's very Island of the, of the Lilliputians. Yes. And also, very the Ewoks in Star Wars. Also, the Ewoks in Star Wars. <laughs> so. Fate Galadriel uh, tells uh, Willow that he should, you know, that there is this, you know, special island kingdom, you know, that, or that, like, he should take this baby to Tirazli or, or, like, oh, I guess at this point he just tells, she just tells her to, like, him to, like, find this. Finn Rizel. Yeah, Finn Rizel, yeah. Is this, she is this sorceress who was exiled to an island by Bavmorda. Rizel is going to be our Yoda figure. Uh, yes. With the twist that she actually sticks around with the party. Right. And does so something. She, she sends them to find Rizel on this island. And she sends two brownies, uh, Jules and Frangine. Uh, yes, because they are French-Canadian. Yep, to be, the, uh, to be his guides. Frangine is the more 
res- they're they're very comic relief, but Frangine yes. is the more responsible one uh, who t- who tries to be the leader. Um, but he has no sense of direction, which is why Rule, who is otherwise an idiot, is sent along too because he's got the good sense of direction. Yes. So they go off. Uh, Willow tells Migosh to go home and you know send Kaya his love, and that you know he is going to go and take this baby. They end up going to this like really seedy tavern where he starts like asking random women for milk. Yeah. Which, I mean, if you if if you're desperate, like if you, you're desperate, he doesn't he doesn't have milk. options. Milk. But yeah. <laughs> but they're all like, uh, it's like get away, peck, like. Which seems to be the slur word for yeah. Nelwyn in this film. Yeah, yeah. Which is used frequently. Frequently. <laughs> Quite uh, frequently. Even Bev Morda is not above calling them pecs. Oh, no, no. Very, very few people seem to be above that. While they're in this seedy tavern, the brownies are playing around with this love potion. So, one it's called a what? Dust of a Broken Heart? Dust of Broken Hearts. <laughs> yes. And so they're playing around with this. Because of that, one briefly uh, falls in love with a cat who is uninterested. Yep, that's Rule. <laughs> who is the idiot. Yeah, um, so this charming brown tabby cat who's, you know, yeah, not not on board with this yeah. romance. And, uh, and, and she knocks him into a mug of beer. Yes. Which he then starts swimming in because it's like, beer! <laughs> <laughs> And he gets sloshed immediately because, you know, the, uh, the content of alcohol to Brownie is... Hi, uh, yes. Hi. <laughs> and also in this tavern, we once again meet Mad Martigan, who yes. is uh, sleeping with a married lady uh-huh. and then disguises himself as a woman as the you know, woman's husband comes in in order to avoid getting you know, attacked by this gentleman. Gentle. Um, gentleman, yes. Um, yeah. Who comes on in and seeing this woman who is introduced as, uh, you know, his wife's cousin says, Wanna breed? Tempting, but no. <laughs> and then, of course, the Queen's soldiers arrive in search of the baby and uh, they end up ultimately escaping with Elora. So we got like the like elaborate right action scene on yep. this cart. So so Sorsha Sorsha's clever. She deduced like she's able to like tell that quote unquote Hilda is not a woman. Yes. At which point uh the woman's husband is like uh is like not a woman? Not a woman? And and uh proceeds to go berserk and like he doesn't care who he's punching. He starts punching the uh, the soldiers, and, right. and and Mad Martigan's like, "Gentlemen, meet Lug." <laughs> <laughs> yes, and so this is the distraction that then allows them to escape. And so we've got this like exciting cart, cha- you know, cart chase scene. Uh huh. Willow is trying to control the horses. Uh, the brownies also kind of have their own sort of narrow escape. And, you know, and it's ultimately like, you know, they're successful, but it is, of course, quite, you know, elaborate and lengthy and there's a lot of fighting and they're going very, very fast. And I do like that at the end of this whole scene, Willow yells at Matt Bardigan and just says, you never drive that fast with an infant. (laughs) 
And, and Mad Mardigan's like, um, you're welcome for saving your life? Yeah. And I do really love, among other things, that this movie very much has in the person of Willow this, like, very cool, like, example of non-toxic masculinity. Yeah. That yeah. Willow is just like, he's like, yeah, what my big skill is that I'm trying to do this magic thing. And my other relevant skill is that I have two kids and I like know how to child care. Yep. Which is great. It really is. It's yeah. so wonderful. Yeah. They do, despite that uh, dispute about <laughs> driving fast with infants, Willow does want to convince Mad Mardigan to join them because he, you know, sees the utility of having an actual warrior along with them yeah and uh and Alora went home. <laughs> uh, right yeah exactly Vankar went home Mikash seemed to you know be you know have some kind of warrior skills as well potentially he at least you know was sort of armed he's now gone home as well so they end up basically having him join him yeah Matt Mardigan's like trying to play up the whole like, oh, I don't want to join you. And, and, but but he's like also like starting to develop a soft spot for the baby. Yeah, yeah. That, like, he, like kind of, a- he and the baby kind of exchange looks. And he's like, I'll come, but only this far. And then and then like a little bit later on, it's like uh it's like, okay, we need to go here now. And and Mad Mardigan's like, oh no, that's the direction I was going. Yes. <laughs> that he is uh, talked into accompanying them. And we see at this point also, I'll add, so, you know, so they're supposed to be going to this uh, sorceress, uh, Finn Rizal, and Willow is given a wand, which is Finn Rizal's wand. And uh, we do see that he does accidentally do a spell. I think it was Cherlindria's uh, wand, technically. Oh, it was her wand. Okay, that's right. Yeah, yeah that's, so, so it's her wand that he's supposed to then give to Finn Vizel, but that he also uh, seems to be able to use it. So we continue yeah. to have this kind of sense, right, that Willow does in fact have his own uh, magical abilities. He, he, Yeah, he like launches himself into a tree by accident. Yeah, um, yeah. So then he can do like, this, he just wakes confidence. up and is like, huh, all right, good night. <laughs> yes. They arrive at their destination and... Uh, Willow goes off to fetch Finn on this island, who, it turns out, is transformed into an animal, which I, at the time, just, I believe in my notes, wrote a rodent. Or, yeah, I think I wrote, yes, mm-hmm. there was some sort of rodent. It is apparently a brush-tail possum, which I will discuss further later <laughs> as a choice. She has been transformed by Morta. She's very happy to see the child. The uh, the brownies are less excited to see her in that, as they say, they expected something more grand and less fuzzy. Yeah. Because at this point, she's barely larger than they are. Yes. Then, unfortunately, Sorsha turns up with the now-captive Mad Mardigan and uh, captures the lot of them, uh, except the brownies. I think they, like, don't realize are there. Yeah, the brownies managed to escape by being, you know... Very they hide funny. They hide under a rock or something. Yes. They're being dragged along. Willow's trying to let them, like, like have them let him actually take care of this poor baby who's clearly not pleased, which they don't especially care, and starts to practice the spell to turn Rizal back into her proper form. You know, and, they, and we do see the beginning of this process. In fact, Rizal uh, bites him because it's like, oh, you, you, need, you need some blood for this, okay? So it's like, you, you could have warned me before the biting and he makes his attempt 
which unfortunately only succeeds at this stage in turning Rizal into a bird. Yep. Which I think is an improvement. Well, yeah. Now she has, you know, she can fly. Yeah. Which she puts to good use. Yeah. Even if she's not happy about not being per- not being a person. Yes, I mean, obviously, person is the goal, and we have not reached there. But this is, I think, at least a step up, as opposed to then a subsequent transformation, which I think is a step down. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, so now she's a bird. The brownies accidentally, as they come to help them escape, manage it to love potion Madame Mardigan. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. Who is first just a bit of a mess. And then as they go into the tent uh, where Sorsha is sleeping and the baby is, he falls in love with Sorsha. Yeah, I'm not I'm not clear on how this potion works because like, you know, at first it seems like, you know, you fall in love with the first thing you see, but then like Mad Mardigan sees Willow and then the brownies and then the baby before laying eyes on Sorsha. So like which is interesting, it yeah, is. because given that the, one of the brownies fell in love with a cat, yeah, it's not that it should be, you know, a creature who is, I, I don't know, I mean, maybe he's just generally attracted to cats, I can't say. <laughs> uh, 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 he is weird enough. Because <laughs> I feel like the implication with, you know, him only, only when he sees Sorsha, I feel like the implication is that it has to be, I don't know, a being sort of vaguely of a type that you ordinarily might be attracted to. Yeah. So that, like, it's not going to, you know, change your sexual orientation, I guess? I guess. I don't know. It's... But then that implies that the brownies got a thing for cats, so... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I I honestly have no idea. It's never specified how, how magic not... works exactly in this no. universe, so... No. So, who knows? But he, you know, is proclaiming his love to Sorsha, which she is not here for at this point. She is understandably skeptical at best. She is skeptical. She is slightly intrigued, but she is skeptical. So she's got like an aspect of how did you get out of your cage? Right. She's like, what is going on here? How did you get in here? (laughs) Yeah. And while all this is happening, the others are just like, we're just going to like take this baby and which at first seems to be working out okay but then uh kale comes in and uh attempts and kind of intervenes and at this point willow is pleasantly surprised that bad mardigan is actually a great swordsman i guess he just thought that he was completely bullshitting yeah like which is fair yeah like mad mardigan's like i am the greatest swordsman who ever lived and willow's like "Uh uh-huh great sure right yeah and then mad mardigan gets a sword and proceeds to tear his way through the nakmar army which and and, yes and willow's like you are great (laughs) yeah no and i and i love this i love the surprise they escape they got like they they kind of shield that they kind of use as a sled Mad Mardigan eventually ends up getting kind of separated from them. Willow and Delora sort of crash into a house, at which point uh, what I call the Mad Valanche, or Mad Mardigan, <laughs> who at this point is like wrapped into a bunch of snow, it's, follows it's, them. It's that classic cartoon trope of like, you know, they uh, someone goes rolling down a snowy hill and by the bot- their time they're at the bottom, like they have accumulated an enormous snowball around them. Yes. I, you, I don't often see that in live action. <laughs> Right, right. No, it's very, it's very, very funny. Very, very charming. Mad Mardigan is at this point shocked to hear about his uh, temporary love for Sorsha. 
<laughs> yeah, he's like, I did what? <laughs> like, I don't love her. I hate her. She kicked me in the face. <laughs> so another interesting element of how this potion works, right, is that it wears off pretty quickly. And once it wears off, he doesn't even have any memory of this having occurred. Yeah. The villagers very generously help them hide, as opposed to immediately turning them over. It also turns out that Eric and the remnant of his army are there as well. Yeah, apparently, like, they they lost, like, half their army in battle yes. against Kale. But then, of course, the Nakmar army arrives... Uh, the baby inconveniently starts crying, but uh, Rizal, and as, as a bird, kind of cause an imitation uh, to, in an attempt to allay suspicion. Which but, works for a yeah, minute. Like, which works for a minute. I mean, the, the problem, right, is that there is a, like, not that subtle trapdoor that is hidden under a not that subtle rug. Mm-hmm. <laughs> which Sorsha manages to find quickly, uh, but Mad Mardigan gets her at sword point. I, I do appreciate, like, Sorsha's not dumb. Like... Oh, yeah. At any point, like, she is she is sharp as a tack. Oh, yeah. Yeah. No, she absolutely is, like, you know, she's, like, we see her, like, making smart moves, right? And in this particular scene, Mad Mardigan gets the best of her, but, you know, she gets the best of him in later scenes and certainly of others. So, you know, I I liked a lot of things about her character. Yeah. Yeah. And she's certainly undoubtedly quite competent, I think. Oh, for sure. Eric is basically trying to talk mad mardigan and willow out of being friends with each other he's like basically like you know to willow like why are you relying on this worthless thief Uh, you know you're just a worthless thief and you serve nobody you know why you know you're not really gonna actually be a trustworthy person to uh continue to help willow and mad mardigan says nope i i serve the nelwyn so yeah which is which is which is a fun twist on how earlier he said i serve no one yes yes so very nice yeah. They ride off and manage to escape with Eric and his men providing some, you know, support in terms of, uh, you know, delaying the others from being able to follow. Yep. While they are uh, riding off and Mad, and Mad Mardigan still has Sorsha as his hostage, they discuss, they discuss his confession of love, which he's <laughs> like, I don't remember this. And he's lens, which she is extra irritated. She's like simultaneously, it seems like irritated that he said he was in love with her, but also more irritated that now he's saying he has no idea what she's talking about. Yeah. She's, she's <laughs> like, she's like quoting his uh, improv poetry back at him. His bad improv poetry. <laughs> oh, I will yeah. add because uh, George Lucas is not good at writing romance. Cough, hold me like you held me by the lake at Naboo. <laughs> <laughs> I hate sand. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Not like you. Sand is coarse and rough and gets everywhere. Not like you. You're soft. <laughs> oh, God. Thank you, George Lucas, for those immortal lines. Frankly, um, I, I feel like the romance subplot is the reason why Attack of the Clones is the worst of the prequels. Yes, I agree. <laughs> Yeah, that and that romance in general, I think, is the worst thing, hands down, about the prequels. Uh, true. I mean, except for maybe the racism and anti-Semitism, I guess. I mean, yeah, yeah. Yeah, maybe that, but the romance is the romance is the second worst. Yep. You know, she manages to get away, and they exchange some smoldering looks as they run off in different directions. Yeah. 
So yeah. perhaps so, to be falling for each other for real. So, something is happening. <laughs> Something's happening, which I will note is very much just like, okay, they're they're the two most like conventionally attractive people in this movie. Also true. I mean, that's very much the vibe, right? It's one of those like, oh yes, these people are the two most conventionally attractive people in this movie, and therefore they will fall in love. Yeah, it's it's the 1980s. We're making a movie. This is obligatory. They reach Tiras Lean, and Tiras Lean is not doing as well as they had hoped. There are some people like trapped in weird ice blocks. There yeah. are signs that there are trolls. So it's, it's, we've got some problems. I'm trying to think. Is it Sleeping Beauty where where she turns everyone into where where she freezes everyone in crystal? Yeah, I think it might be. It's yeah, so it's kind of yeah, Sleeping Beauty vibes. Yeah. Mad Mardigan goes to organize the defenses, which I, I will say he does a very good job at. Uh, it's yeah. kind of, he's got a kind of multi-pronged strategy. He's got traps. He's got all sorts of things set up. Yeah, he doesn't he doesn't have any backup from the people of Tira's Lean because they're all frozen in crystal, but he does have access to the armory. The visible excitement on his face where he's like, oh, this is good. <laughs> yeah, no, it's very, very fun. So he's kind of going on that. Like he's will, he's loading, yeah. he's loading. He and Willow are loading catapults, ballistae, like, he gets a new suit of armor, which yes. is quite it's very nice. Fancy. It's, <laughs> it's very like fancy. Bold. <laughs> he's like, he's like, I'm going to take the nicest armor here because no one is here to stop me. <laughs> yep, it's like, all right, go for it, go for it, buddy. Willow, meanwhile, is trying again to return Roselle to her proper form, but is distracted by the arrival of Kale and turns her into a goat, which is the form that I think is definitely a downgrade. Yeah. I mean, it is more combat capable, but... Yeah, but we don't don't really see much of the goat in combat, though. No. I mean, it does kick some guys off a bridge. Yeah, yeah. Which, you know, I guess that's helpful, but I'm... I, I'm not sure it's an improvement over the bird, at least. Oh, no. I think it's at best, like, a net kind of unchanged. Mm-hmm. They're attempting to, you know, fight the invading army off, who are, you know, getting a battering ram so that they can come on in. Willow is trying to kind of de- deal with these trolls and um, turns one into what I would describe as an upsetting horror brain, Yes. With a couple little heads poking out, which then become significantly larger heads. Uh-huh. Yeah, he, he's like, oh, this is gross. And he kicks it all over into, I guess, the castle moat. Yeah. At which point uh, it grows into a, an enormous two-headed fire-breathing dragon. Yes. So once a troll, no, it's it's worse. This is definitely worse. It's worse, <laughs> but it does also eat a troll. So it's it at least like it doesn't. It's it doesn't yeah. take sides. The, it uh, is an equal opportunity. Yeah, it, it's it, it becomes like a three way battle between like Willow and Mad Mardigan versus Kale's army versus this dragon, and like yes. Kale's army is trying just as hard to kill the dragon as Mad Mardigan is. Yes. Yeah, because because the dragon is, as I said, the dragon is not the dragon is not on anybody's side. Nope. One thing I did notice is that like the heads of this dragon look kind of like the rancor. Yeah, yeah. Some some casual reuse here. Mm-hmm. Sorsha is impressed by Mad Mardigan's skills, and uh, they end up eventually sharing a kiss. So she's uh, she's switched sides, I guess now. Yeah. 
there was a there was a funny bit where like the dragon first appears and like and the and the army's like oh god and they turn tail and run and mad martigan is like haha they're scared of me and then he turns around and looks over his shoulder yes! and he runs too and then and then like once they get once he gets to a safe distance he looks around and realizes that he is standing among the army <laughs> right and Sorsha, like, who has not quite switched sides yet, like, gives him, lo- like, gives him this look of, really, dude? <laughs> and this, I will say, this is, like, the bit in Sorsha's arc that I'm kind of not uh, here for, is that it really does seem like she just changes sides because, like, this guy is cute. Yeah. Yeah. And we haven't really sown earlier any real sense of, like, discontent with, you know, like, it's like, which we could have, right? Like, we could have had more yeah. of a sense earlier that she was, like, not thrilled about being sent to murder a baby. Yeah, it's, it is, it is probably the biggest misstep in this film, but. Yeah, so, so that I think is, you know, just, I, I think Sorsha deserved better in terms of there being more of a kind of clear reason for her to, like, switch sides and completely change her life. Yeah, yeah. That is, that is, I would say, the kind of big, biggest disappointment for me. But she's now on the right side, but Kale has the baby and rides off with the baby to the castle. Bev Morda is annoyed to hear that Sorsha has now betrayed her. She's just kind of like in a look. I, I think it's, I think it's like more than just annoyance because she's like, for, for all of Bev Morda's faults, and let's be fair, like, Bavmorda is not a good person, but she does like seem to genuinely care about her daughter, and like she's you- not an awful mother. Like she's obviously no. you know, she's tasked, you know, but she clearly you know was confident in her daughter's abilities. Right, her daughter is the first person she sends off after the baby. She only adds Kale in there after Sorsha has been trying for a while and hasn't succeeded. Yeah. So. Yeah, she she genuinely seems like surprised and upset. And her advisor absolutely has like this amazing I told you so expression. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> she begins to prepare this ritual that they're in order to not only kill the baby, but I guess like this what matters, right, is the soul of the baby, right? Because the baby is not yeah. actually like descended from anybody important like genetically or anything yeah, like, like that like, like I, I believe the case is like you know if if they kill the baby then the baby will just that then like there'll you know, just be a new baby in a be, year or whatever yep and and so they have to like do this ritual to like seal the baby's soul away in i don't know the shadow realm the 13th dimension or so, whatever it is so, something yeah, yeah. So they have to do this whole ritual so that they not only kill the baby, but also get rid of the baby's soul. I will just add at this point, this ritual seems to be the longest ritual in world history because we see like night and day happen at least like twice. This ritual has to take like 48 hours. Which honestly, I appreciate like sometimes magic shouldn't be instantaneous. I guess if you wanna if you wanna send a baby's soul to the nether realms, yeah, sure. <laughs> this is this is big magic. You you don't get to instantaneously banish a soul to the nether world. Nope. You got, it takes work. But yeah, so it is like the longest ritual ever. Uh, 
And so they're like starting the preparations for the ritual. And while they're doing that, she sees that the army has arrived and she turns the warriors, including Mad Mardigan, into cakes. Yeah. And Willow is able to escape this, this mass spell because Rizel like talks him through doing a quick protection chant on himself with the wand. Yes. Yes. So um, the, the two of them are, well, I mean, she's a goat still, but yeah. he's also, himself, she's a goat. Like, also, when Bathmorda, like, looks down from the walls and sees that Sorsha is among this army of her enemies, like, she, like, genuinely she's looks, she's, like, genuinely, like, in tears. Yeah, she's hurt, which I, which I like. Yeah. So they're now pigs. Most of, you know, most of the mm-hmm. army. And so Willow then tries again to uh, transform Rizal into her proper form. And he eventually succeeds. She cycles through a bunch of different additional forms, uh-huh. but eventually comes out as the older woman, which is who she is. Although interestingly, it seems that uh, time has had that she is aged because yeah. she is surprised by her appearance. So even though she has been a possum, etc., her human form has despite that aged. Yeah. And she's like, like earlier she was like, my true form is of a young and beautiful woman. And, that, right. and, now, and now she like comes out of it and she's like, has it really been that long? Yeah. <laughs> but then she's able to, you know, use her own magic with, with the wand to transform the army of pigs back into people. Yes. She is able to do that, right? And so they, you know, begin to hatch a plan. Eric is, like, very quick. He's like, yeah, we're done. We can't do this. I have to leave. Like, this is all useless. I mean, he knows when he's like, we don't have siege equipment to storm the castle walls. Right. Right. We can't do it. (laughs) Right. Willow, of course, wants to fight. Mad Mardigan agrees to join and he comes up with a suggestion having something to do with gophers, mm-hmm. which it turns out that basically it's that like they dig a bunch of holes in the ground, kind of, and like the men on horses are like in the holes. And so when they kind of go out, they think there's like nobody out there, and then the army all kind of emerge from under these holes. Yeah, like Willow and Rizel like are the only ones out there, and they're like, yeah. we can take you all on ourselves. And like the soldiers on the wall are like, there's only two of you. <laughs> so they sit, so right. they like lower the drawbridge, send out some wo- send out some warriors. At which point the army emerges from the holes and charges in. Right, and this is when again, like di- like night has passed into day, and uh-huh. the ritual is of course like still going. And I appreciate that the ritual takes a while, but I don't understand if they quite know how long the ritual takes. And so I'm like, I feel like you should have a tiny bit more urgency. <laughs> Yeah. Around, like, saving this baby. Yeah. But be that as it may, they are successful using this ruse in managing to get into the castle. So the soldiers, as well as Mad Mardigan, fight while uh, Sorsha, Rizal, and Willow all go in after Alora. They interrupt the ritual. We've got the kind of, like, face-off, the, like, wizard face, or the sorceress face-off between Rizal and Bavmorda. With Rizal it, having this it, wand, uh, the wand of Cherlindria as the kind of added help. 
Yep, and and it's very impressive. Like they're shooting magic at each other, yeah. and it looks really cool. And eventually, it devolves into just they stop casting spells and start physically wrestling over the wand. Yes, and like at some point, like Result just like punches Bavmorda in the face. It's amazing. <laughs> also, by by this point, like. Over the course of this ritual, it seems to be taking a lot out of Bath Morta because by this point, like, Bath Morta's got, like, what I can only describe as Palpatine face. Yes. Yes, she does. She absolutely has Palpatine face as she's fighting off the Force Lightning, I mean, magic from the wand. Right? <laughs> yeah. The other fun bit is that at some point, because the the magic, like, strikes that, right, sometimes go awry and hit other things. And so there's a bit at which, like, Willow has to now, like, as he's trying to get to Alora and, like, get her off the altar, he is, like, trying to fight off this, like, accidentally enchanted table, which is fun. Eric dies. Rest in peace, Eric. Kale stabs him. Mad Mardigan goes to his fallen friend and and Eric gives him like you know last words which I wind don't remember war. what they are. And he kisses win this war for me which oh, is funny right. because Mad Mardigan has been like way more into this war than he has been for a while. Well, well yeah at, at, it's it's a callback to like when we first saw the two and and like oh, Mardigan's yes. like let me out of the cage give me a sword and I'll win this war for you. That's right yeah and so then he says win this war for me because he's finally you know they appreciate each other so uh-huh. that's nice that's yeah. nice he now battles Kale, which he eventually succeeds with the help of several swords. Oh yeah, Kale. It takes it, Kale goes down like Rasputin. Like uh, yeah, like so. Mad Mardigan is dual wielding Eric's sword as well as his own, and he yeah. like stabs Kale through the gut with Eric's sword and like leaves the sword there. But Kale is still going. So like Eric. So Mad Mardigan like disarms him and then like brings him and like pulls him down onto the blade of Kale's own sword. And even then Kale's Kale's still moving. So then uh, Mad Mardigan kicks him off this high bridge that they're fighting on. And then he looks down and Kale is still moving. So just for, just for good measure, like, like Mad Mardigan throws a dagger at him and that's what finishes him off. (laughs) That's right. Yeah. Also at some point, Kale's mask gets smashed, which I appreciate because, like, bone is a bone helmet is good for like intimidation. It's not so good as protection. Yes, yeah. So yeah, it gets smashed. He's got like the bone helmet kind of half on his face at this point. So, so you know, it's and you know, I, and it's a good fight. You know, it clearly like takes a lot, but he's not you know superhuman. Yeah. So. I mean, he's, he's nearly superhuman, let's be honest. But yeah, he's, you know, he's impressive. He's clearly a skilled figure, but and it's interesting because with the bone helmet, first I kind of thought he was like supernatural and then at some point he takes off the helmet. It's like, oh, okay, you're just a dude. Yeah. Meanwhile, we go back to the continued battle for Alora. Willow manages to get the kid. He tries to tell Bav Morda, oh, I'm a great sorcerer, right? And she's like, uh-uh. He throws what he finally throws an acorn, which I yeah. I was kind of like we we needed the acorns earlier. I didn't understand why he didn't yeah. throw an acorn at the dragon. Oh, he well he tried to, but he, he tried fumbled. to, and then he kind of fumbled. He fumbled it, yeah. it, and and it landed on the on the like wooden bridge and turned one of the beams into stone, which then fell because it's stone. Right, and he fell. You've got to turn bridge, all of the bridge to stone or none of the bridge to stone. Yeah. 
he throws one of these acorns at her, which at first seems like it might, but she grabs it. And at first it seems like it might work, but she overpowers it essentially. Yeah. Cause she is like, you know, the Impressive. strongest with yeah. magic. <laughs> and Willow in his next trip makes the child disappear. Yep. Which she basically freaks the fuck out to the extent that she starts knocking shit over and basically it destroys herself with her own powers. It's yeah, a very well, like Ursula she, at the end of Little Mermaid. She like goes to run after him and she like runs through the magic circle of the ritual and banishes her own soul to the 13th dimension, I guess. Whoops. Whoops. <laughs> yep. Bye, Bavmorda. And Sorsha and Rizal come too, and they're like, what happened? And and uh And they're like, Where and, is the baby though? Yeah, and and Willow's like, Oh, it's just the old disappearing pig trick, and he like pulls her out from under a table. Yeah, yeah, and she was and you know, and she was much more accommodating than the pig, so uh-huh. Well she she can't run away. Well, yeah, so she's like very intensely swaddled uh throughout uh-huh. the entire film. Yeah. Yeah, so they have emerged victorious. Willow receives a gift uh, of a book of magic and leaves Laura in the care of Sorsha, Madame Mardigan, and Rizal. And he goes home and yeah. says, like, and I'm also, now and greets his family. All the, all the people of Tirazlin are, like, uncrystallified. Right, they they fix that at some point. I, you know, I don't know if they fix that I, or if it's just one of those things that when yeah, Bob like, Morta dies, it just goes away. It's something. Yeah. But, I suppose, so I suppose Rizal could have, like, uncrystalled them if, if that didn't work. Yeah, but yeah, so... Either way. So they're fine now. Yep. And, uh, yeah, and so Willow is able to go home to his family. Yep, which is nice. and, he, and he also, like, you know, comes home to something of a hero's welcome, and he proves that he can do magic now by repeating the High Aldwin's trick of turning a rock into a bird. Yes, yes, so... And everyone's like, yay. oh, okay, cool. All right. So he'll, he'll presumably get to, you know, continue on this path of becoming a sorcerer. Yeah. So at this point, we can get into the Vera at Falso, or what do they get right and wrong? And of course, it's fantasy. Technically, they can do whatever they want. But I'll have a couple of comments, <laughs> nevertheless, on this. First of all, I think it is kind of interesting, this element that we touched on earlier in terms of the way the story draws on mostly Moses and a little hint of Jesus. Yeah. Uh, in that, it sort of add, I think it kind of adds to this feeling, right, in terms of the, the ways in which these stories are very much, you know, part of the kind of everyday bread and butter background knowledge of anybody in a medieval context. So kind of interesting then to see them sort of played out in this fantasy yeah. setting. Yeah. Possums. Possums. <laughs> so Rizal is supposed to be a brush tail possum. An animal which is native to Australia. So in the world of the film, which visually speaking seems to be vaguely pre-modern Europe, they would have been unfamiliar with this particular creature. Mm-hmm. So the possum is slightly inaccurate. As is a bit anachronistic, we think of this as medievalism, the practice of basically placing these criminals in these hanging cages. And this is where I did like a lot of research on specifically these hanging cages. So first of all, when we have these hanging cages, they're not a method of execution. They're a method of corpse display for previously executed criminals. 
Hmm. So you wouldn't have a dude chilling out being alive in this cage. <laughs> uh, it's that you otherwise, you know, you the person is hanged or whatever, and then put on display. They're not just like left in the cage to starve. So that is first of all. And then second, while there are other methods that we see in the Middle Ages proper in terms of displaying corpses of criminals, this particular method, I will note, is something that we can perhaps consider instead characteristic of the early modern period or arguably even what we might call like the modern era. Okay. The scholar who seems to have done the most work on this is uh, an archaeologist named Sarah Tarlow who identifies the peak of the practice of gibbeting and specifically the use of these iron cages in England as the 1740s. Okay. And that it was in fact legally mandated as something you should do with specifically the corpses of murderers even later than that in 1752. Uh, And this was not abolished until 1834. So there were 134 people who were hanged and then placed in these cages between 1752 and 1832. That's modern. America's around already. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I will say that this was not the, despite the law, this was not in fact the only standard method of uh, what you do with executed criminals. And in fact, it seems like the majority of bodies of executed criminals in the 18th and early 19th century were instead donated to science. That's where you got corpses for dissection was from executed criminals. Fair enough. Yeah. In medieval Europe, in addition to the fact that, you know, executions are actually much more rare, I will note, in the Middle Ages than people tend to assume they are. People are not being executed constantly. And there are a lot of other methods, including like fines of punishing crime. But also this particular display method is not what we generally would have seen. So first of all, a lot of bodies of criminals are just buried. They're just buried in usually specially designated cemeteries. And I will note there's also seems to have been some sense that execution is very much considered to be a punishment that happens within this world and that it doesn't necessarily say anything about the ultimate fate of uh, this person right in terms of you know heaven and hell and purgatory which is what many people would be particularly concerned with and in fact if you actually repented you know which you're given the opportunity to do if you sincerely repented as a criminal then in fact there's also a belief like a belief that some people seem to hold that in fact even the suffering that you might undergo in the process of execution was actually something that might even like shave off some of your time in purgatory That, you know, the idea, right, that, you know, criminals' uh, bodies deserve no respect or the idea that, you know, criminals are automatically going to hell is, you know, not something that would, in fact, have been entirely what people would have believed. There are, however, methods that are used of uh, humiliating the executed criminal body. In particular, I would say those probably would have been most common for people who are considered to be traitors. So that is who the punishment of uh, quartering, in particular, is used for, right, that you... uh, after general, you know, usually after you are executed, this is usually not something that you are alive for, but after you are otherwise executed, uh, you know, perhaps through beheading, you then, your body would be divided up into some pieces, 
which would then be generally sent to significant locations. Uh, one of the articles I was reading described it as the uh, geography of execution and its aftermath, <laughs> that like very deliberate choices are made about where you get executed and then like where the corpse pieces get sent off to. Okay, sure. <laughs> It's in the late Middle Ages that we start to see more commonly that the corpses of specifically hanged criminals, so people, for example, who might be hanged for something like murder, get to be left on the gallows that people can see the corpses rot, essentially. This is something that we would see in the late Middle Ages, but the particular institution of using these iron cages was more of an early modern one, and arguably, you could even say that the display of criminal bodies and this kind of specific sort of display of punishment and state authority is actually even very much linked to like early modern modern ideas of the state and therefore like in a lot of ways make more sense in that context than they would in a medieval one yeah so yes everybody this is modern this is modern Mm -hmm. not medieval Mm -hmm. this one's modern in my usual we're still violent by the way (laughs) modernity (laughs) still violent and mean uh-huh those are the only things that i really kind of like pulled out as uh things that i did research on in terms of accuracy but Fair. for the historia and veritas i want to chat a little bit about queenship because i think that it is a really cool element of this film that there is a very casual acceptance of the idea of women as rulers yeah yeah because we've got Bavmorda, of course, and we've also got Sorsha, who is kind of, I guess, accepted as going to be her heir, right? Up right until, she's clearly being treated as such, Right up I think. until she switches sides. And Elora Danon is, like, prophesied to be Empress, which is, I think, an interesting yes. choice. She's fancy. Very words. fancy. Yeah. yeah. So that, yeah, she's going to be Empress. So obviously some pretty significant authority there. Yeah. There's also, you know, there is the fairy queen Cherlindria, who, you know, seems to be the only person presented in that authority position. She doesn't have a, like, consort or anything even that we see. But I also think that she's kind of, like, tied to her home forest. Like, I don't think she can travel. Yes. So, you know, she's obviously a very different sort of monarch. Oh, yeah. Yeah, but, you know, is still certainly interesting. But as I said, there is this kind of casual acceptance of the normalcy of female rulership. And, of course, this is something that increasingly studies of medieval rulership and power increasingly are acknowledging the importance of women as rulers in a variety of different ways. First of all, that there are a lot of medieval reigning queens, People often, I think, kind of point to situations in which queens are not accepted, right? That there is the, uh, of course, kind of obvious example of Matilda, who is rejected, essentially, by the nobility as ruler in, you know, for reasons that probably have a lot to do with gender, I would say. Yeah. Oh, for sure. And also um, the the matter of France, where, like, yes. the, ru- the rule is that, is very strict that, like, not only can a woman never be the ruler, but also like the claim to the throne can't pass through daughters either, which is right. Which is but what it's... the whole hundred years war is about. Well, right, exactly. And that I think is also kind of really interesting in this regard in that it's something that was a kind of old law on the books, but that really seems to have become so central to the French 
not necessarily because it was something they actually, I think, did feel strongly about from a kind of gender perspective, but because it was a good way to say, like, no, uh uh-uh, to the English claims. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. And some other people who they, like, didn't like, basically, and, like, didn't want to rule France. It was essentially kind of functioned as a kind of convenience as much as anything else. Right. Like, the English cannot take the French throne because... uh because of these rules that we have just um, discovered. <laughs> yeah, we, we found it. No book, we promise. Uh, yeah. I think, you know, it was sort of on the books, but it was something that nobody really particularly thought about until it proved useful for a variety of reasons. Right. But in other places, there are absolutely reigning queens. Uh, so Castile in particular has, uh, has several reigning queens. And also, if we go further afield, the Crusader Kingdom of Jerusalem has a number of reigning queens. The Kingdom of Georgia in Eastern Europe, that uh, Tamar of Georgia reigns for about 30 years, uh, has a title which is basically equivalent to king and presides over a golden age. She's a big deal in the late 12th, early 13th century. There are Byzantine empresses who are, in fact, reigning monarchs. And if we go then even, you know, much further afield, this is in fact a global phenomenon that there are several queens in Kashmir, there are queens in the Sultanate of the Maldives, and a reigning empress of Vietnam, briefly, in the 13th century. Hmm. I didn't know about those. Yeah, I I, I did some fun kind of digging about women who actually were kind of reigning monarchs. Fair. I, I don't... My my own research doesn't usually look further east than Constantinople. So, yeah, so I just did some kind of extra digging for fun, just in terms of, you know, what I could turn up. And as I said, you know, this is very much a global phenomenon that reigning queens, while certainly in the minority in terms of rulers, do undoubtedly exist. Yeah. And also that, especially if we think about other ways in which women have real political power, that... I think you can even more make the argument, and this is something that we're seeing a lot within the scholarship, that women's rulership is not exceptional. It is not entirely out of what we would consider to be normalized in some respects. And so that's true, especially when you think about beyond queenship, if you think about women's lordship, that while actually having a woman as a reigning monarch is something that kind of raised more issues and was more likely to be subject to challenge, people seem to have for the most part been very casual about the fact that, yeah, if somebody, if a lord dies and leaves only a daughter, in most places, she is just the person who is in charge. And yeah. like armies swear, and like her like father's like men swear fealty to her and she is like their military commander. Yep. And in some of these cases, like the, the reigning duchess or countess uh, could be like could have power that rivals like actual kings. Yeah, like, absolutely. The obvious a- example is Eleanor of Aquitaine. Of who course. Ruled more of, well, she personally ruled more of France than the king of France. Right. Yeah. Who was and also, her ex husband. <laughs> right. And also, it's so interesting in terms of looking at the Aquitaine is that the standard assumption now a lot of times and in you know in some contexts in the middle ages would be that a woman is kind of under the power of her husband and that if a woman marries right that man is going to be the person who's really in charge when we look at eleanor of aquitaine the people like the lords in the aquitaine never had the least bit of interest in or respect for either of her two husbands who were the king of france and the (laughs) king of england 
They were just true. like, no, you, you do not have authority over me. Nope. You're not nope. my problem. <laughs> like they only acknowledge her authority in, in, and eventually also, uh, you know, one of her sons, but uh, yeah, Richard. Yeah. Richard, yeah, who was kind of brought up, you know, because he yeah. was the second son or the second son who lived to at least yeah. young adulthood. He was initially being brought up as the kind of heir to the Aquitaine. They were like, yes, this is your heir. Yeah, because I believe the original setup for Henry and Eleanor's whole little empire there was that... Henry the Younger would get England and Normandy. I think, I think England, Normandy, and Anjou. Yes, and then Richard would get Eleanor's territories, which is Aquitaine, Gascony, and Poitou. Geoffrey would get... Brittany, because he gets married to the, the heiress. Yeah, and also they they had just kind of conquered that on the way by. Yeah. And and John was supposed to get Ireland, which they which hadn't is... finished conquering yet. Well, I mean, that's like why they conquered Ireland, essentially. It's, it's like, like Henry's like, John doesn't have anything. I have to conquer Ireland for John. Yeah, and, the, and he asks the Pope, like, hey, uh, can I get permission to conquer Ireland? And uh, the Pope, who is the only Pope to ever come out of England, says, sure. <laughs> I don't give and, that is, yeah. and that is the start of the Troubles, which, yep. which continue to this day. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, you know, all sorts of interesting things happen there. But yeah, but so she is this like very, you know, obvious example, right, of female lordship. And that is not totally uncommon, And of course, there's a lot of other ways in which we see women wielding effective political power in formal and informal ways. So first of all, there are a number of examples of women who serve as regents in the context of having, you know, minor children inherit the throne. So, you know, a good example of that would be Blanche of Castile, who is the mother of Louis IX of France, that, you know, she's somebody who is formally ruling for some amount of time and like leads armies against rebellious nobles because a king being in his minority is a good time to rebel. There's also uh, Isabella of France, what, who had intended to be the, the regent to young Edward III up until Edward was like, nope, we're not doing this. I'm in charge. Right. And that's, of course, also an extra complicated situation in that Isabella also, like, overthrew her husband and somebody at some point probably had him murdered. Yeah, yeah. But, the, uh, you know, but yeah, certainly also an example of effective power for some amount of time. Yep. <laughs> Antrim is also a big thing in particular in the Crown of Aragon, so which is my main area, that it was basically this standard in a lot of the 14th and 15th centuries that kings would actually name their wives as their lieutenants. So which is a term that if you look at like the word lieutenant, which comes from the French, if you look at the Catalan equivalent, which is the Oprimem, it literally means like holding the place of, right? And so these are people who essentially like if the king was like doing something else, basically acted as the king and yeah. it was pretty common for people for you know for kings to have their wives their their queen their queen consorts to actually also be like queen lieutenants yeah and l- like like i'm going off to war you're in charge while i'm gone yeah yeah i've got to like or like i've got to like like we run sicily now so i have to fuck around in sicily so you're yeah. going to like rule back home mm-hmm. gosh that was a whole mess Everything, everything involving the Sicilies is a mess. <laughs> yes, uh, I, I'm actually going to be going to, on the justification that it's part of the Crown of Aragon. I'm going to be doing research in Palermo this summer 
in theory, uh, the archive website has been down for one week, which oh, means oh. I cannot book my archive slots. Uh, so we'll see how that goes. Good luck. <laughs> I'm going to Palermo. The question is whether I'll get to go to an archive or whether I'll have to like sit on the beach and eat gelato. Oh no, <laughs> sitting on the beach and eating gelato. What, how, how, how awful. Yeah. And then of course, also there's a lot of examples, right? Of women holding power informally through influence that they have on their husbands and sons. Oh yes. So it is, I think, really interesting that, you know, we, we might not have in the real Middle Ages an example of the kind of casual acceptance of female rulership that we see, you know, to the extent that we see in this film. But it certainly was not something I think, argue, you know, is arguably not something that we should see as fully out of the ordinary or entirely, you know, exceptional insofar as, you know, all these people are elites and therefore exceptional. Yeah. But that, you know, I think it is interesting, especially given that, it's so common in movies set in either the Middle Ages or in some medieval inspired fantasy worlds that things are actually like worse for women than they mm-hmm. were in the real Middle Ages. So it's always nice to see something where things are like slightly better. Yeah. No, and and, and this is also like we've been we've been drawing parallels to both Lord of the Rings and Star Wars throughout this whole thing because George Lucas only has one plot in him. Um, <laughs> and like I think it's noteworthy that th- that this movie is better about women representation than either of those two things. Oh yes, absolutely. Yeah. Star Wars, the only significant female character in the original trilogy is Leia. Yeah. And to and to I guess like a much lesser extent Mon Mothma who is like, you know, officially the head of the Rebel Alliance, but also she like only gets two lines because she's a political leader and not fighting. Yeah, yeah. So she's really not much of a character. Um, this, ooh, actually, in the this passes the Bechdel test. It does multiple times. Yeah, because because every time that someone is talking about another, the two characters are talking about another character. They're talking about a Laura Dannon. Yeah. So there are conversations between Pavmorda and Sorsha, which are about the baby. Yeah. That pass. That's awesome. It does. Yeah. Several times. Yeah. Like also Rizel. <laughs> I'm trying to remember if Rizel talks to... Uh, yeah, I guess actually, like, Rizel and Bavmorda fighting. Like, the, yeah. like, the conversation that they have in that scene. Yeah, all of that passes. All of it. Yeah. Awesome. And so, it passes yeah. the F. Decker test, because I think the only... The only, only named woman who dies is Bavmorda. Yeah, yeah. And so, the, so, you know, Alora Dan is, like, a baby, so I'm not gonna, it, like... Yeah, and, and it's implied the midwife also dies, but... Yes, I think the midwife got eaten by the pig dogs. Probably. But she was actually never named. Or no, she was actually. She, she was, I don't remember actually. Her name, but she was. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, she, I don't remember her name, but she was named. Mm-hmm. We do actually learn her name. I think we actually do learn her name. And I think we learn the name of Alora Dannett's mother, although I don't remember it. But I think sure. actually they have a conversation that technically this, passes the Bechdel test. Yeah, this is this is like within the first two minutes of the movie. That, yeah, and that I think they're... they actually refer to each other by name. So they're named characters and they're talking about the baby in Bavmorda. Mm-hmm. So that also passes. Yeah. Yeah. This movie handily passes the Bechdel test and handily passes the If Decker test, since we have certainly both Sorsha and Rizal. I think you could, you know, argue whether or not like Alora Dannon is like a character as opposed to like an object. A yeah. A but certainly, yeah. But certainly we have like two solid surviving women characters. So pretty good. Yeah. And only one is eleven, which is like my my sort of like 
caveat increasingly that I'm thinking about introducing is that at least like, is that you should all, is that like to like, I don't know, mega pass the Decker test. There yeah. has to be at least one surviving female character who has, I guess, at least a function in the plot other than being a love interest. And I think actually both of them fit that and that yeah. Sorsha has it's- like a reason to be in the movie other than as like Mad Mardigan's girlfriend. Yeah, and also, like, Bav Morda and Rizelle and yeah. Alora Dannon. Yeah, like, they all have other purposes in the movie. Only Sorsha has a romance plot at all, and it's, like, not her whole thing. Yeah. So, yeah, handily. Handily succeeds. With that, I can get into the Fabula Nostra, a film or other piece of media inspired by this one. And for this, uh, you know, I will, I will not say instead of. I will say in addition to yes. this one, since uh, I think this is, this is pretty good. And I will say, you know, there is, of course, a sequel series coming out, which as far as I can tell is uh, yes. some number of years in the future. And uh, I guess Alora is probably like running things and they need Willow to like come back and help with something. Yeah. So in between, so like in the span of time between you and I watching this movie and you and I recording this episode, a new trailer dropped. Yeah, at for for like this this sequel series, which is coming out uh, November of 2022, yes. um, on Disney Plus, and Warwick Davis and Joanne Whaley are returning as Willow and Sorsha, and otherwise it's an entirely new cast. Uh, Val Kilmer will not be returning because he retired from acting a few years ago to to due to health complications. Mm-hmm. He had a really nasty bout of throat cancer and now mm. uh, cannot speak. Yeah, Aww. which is. Which is sad. But. Yeah. But yeah, and so, you know, it's, you know, I mean, in the actual real world uh, at this point, you know, close to close to 35 years have passed uh, in between. Yeah. This this film came out like the year after I was born. Uh-huh. So by that standard, right, Alora, Alora Dannon should be, for assuming that same amount of time has passed, Alora Dannon should be a uh, woman in her 30s. Yeah. And, and like, I don't know much about the plot, but yeah, it's like a, uh... Willow seems to have matured as a sorcerer. He's got like a cool glowing staff now and his hair is longer. And it and, says uh, specifically, so it has somebody saying to him like, Willow, we need your magic. Yeah. So. Which is, which is pretty cool. Like, yeah. like he has, he has become the, the wise old wizard now. Yeah. So that's yeah. cool. And it makes sense that like, maybe he's like replaced the high Aldwin. Because Possibly. I mean that, I mean, I, I don't know what like the lifespan is like for. I, I, I can tell you that. But. I can't tell you that uh, that Billy Barty has passed away mm-hmm. at some point. Yeah. And so, you know, I mean, and unless you're, unless it's a system, right? Like, you know, in like Lord of the Rings where Gandalf is basically immortal, but unless it's a system like that, if if the High Aldwin is just like a guy, then... And I, and I don't know. think it, and I don't think it is a system like that because the High Aldwin, uh, the High Aldwin, like... I would say about two thirds of his magic is just headology. Yeah. Yeah. And also like, you know, he's taking apprentices, right. And the idea behind yeah. that presumably is that it's somebody who's going to be his successor. So, you know, that also leads to the assumption, I think that, you know, he's, you know, a guy who does not have a dramatically beyond normal lifespan. So it certainly yeah. is plausible that at this point he's passed away and Willow has succeeded him. Also in this trailer, um, mo- it's mostly new characters, like newer, younger characters who will be mm-hmm. going adventuring with Willow. But, you know, we get to see Willow, we get to see so- Sorsha. And the only other character I recognized was Vonkar. 
Oh, Bunkar! Which is... Hey, buddy! Which is interesting, but yeah. I'm here for it. All right. Come on back, Bunkar. <laughs> but yeah, so we've, we've got our sequel series just coming out. And uh, my other suggestion is that... Uh, well, or sorry, I sort of had two other ideas. The first is, of course, you know, Disney. Disney owns everything. And Disney's new big thing is doing villain origin stories. So I think that like the like how Bav Morda got to be uh, such a such a mean lady (laughs) that would be that would be fun. Yeah, she she really does like have very generic evil overlord energy. Yeah, Um, so I don't know that I have a specific idea, but I think it could be fun to uh, to have her to have her villain origin story. That would be fun. And my other thought is that I would love a series that's actually centered on Sorsha and maybe like starts by perhaps like explaining why she's like other reasons why she switched sides or like seeding some discontent Mm -hmm. with, you know, something about like the way her mother rules, right? Like she could have an opposition to the fact that her mother is an authoritarian, cruel baby murderer. Yeah. And that, you know, something, and, you know, getting a sense maybe, right, of there being something other than this cute boy that sends her over the edge and then getting into her adventures and the fact that, like, presumably she is, like, functioning basically as a kind of regent. Yeah. I mean, because, like, Alora Dannon is a baby. It's true. And Sorsha so. probably better uh, better equipped for that role than Mad Mardigan. <laughs> Of the three people who are presented as like taking a leadership role or who are like, you know, kind of like in charge of Alora, right? It's Rizel, Mad Mardigan, and Sorsha. Sorsha, especially given that I think we should assume that she's probably being groomed as her mother's heir, mm-hmm. she's absolutely presumably the person who is most qualified to carry out the kind of everyday duties of rulership in this like period of regency, which yeah. will, you know, last for like presumably at least the next, you know, 15 years. Right. Yeah. So, and, um, yeah. yeah. Rizelle would be a good advisor, but. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Rizelle would be a good advisor. And if they need to fight something, they can, you know, send Ben, ben Mardigan out. Sure. That works. Yeah. Got a whole system. I admit I didn't. I, I, I forgot about the Fabula Nostra again um, <laughs> before, before recording. I will propose, I want to see, I guess, like, sort of almost a Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead comedy film where mm-hmm. uh, Rule and Frangine go off on an adventure of their own. Yes! Because they are so fun. <laughs> like, just these two crazy little guys who are about three inches tall, like, just running around having adventures. Oh, yes, that sounds so fun. I would, I would watch that. Yeah, I would watch the hell out of that. Yeah, yeah. I don't. I don't know if they're if they'll be coming back in the new series. There is like a shot in the trailer of Willow talking to a couple of brownies, but it's very brief and like I and like I couldn't get a good view of who the brownies are. Yeah, I hope they'll bring back the characters. I I don't know what's up with the with the actors and if they're yeah, yeah. living and up for it, but I hope they bring back True. the the characters in some sense. Yeah, it would be fun. Yeah. So at this point, we can move into the estimatio or rating section, where you rate the film on a scale of one to five based on whatever completely subjective criteria we see fit. And I'm going to go for an unusually high for me, 4.5. I am, I am shocked. 
<laughs> I am shocked. Have you ever given a movie a five out of five? I don't I remember. Have. I've, I've given a five. I think I've given three. I've given a five out of five to Lord of the Rings, the Wheel of Time book series, and I believe the BBC Merlin series. Not Holy Grail? to do... I think I gave it a four. Really? I think I gave a point off on gender stuff. Oh, well, yeah, that's valid. Yeah. And there have been a lot of things. And, and my half point that I'm shaving off is in part because I am annoyed about the, like, Sorsha switching sides because of a cute boy. Um, mm-hmm. But otherwise, like, it's a charming movie. I really like that it's a fantasy adventure story, but that it's a fantasy adventure story where most of the characters aren't, like, large men with swords. I, I like the twist that, uh, you know, it's like this, the prophecy is that like this child will bring down the, will, will, will bring about the downfall of the evil overlord. But yet the way it happens is not like she will grow up and take down the evil overlord. Yes. It's, it's the people who are taking care of her are so determined to protect her that they take down the evil overlord. Yeah, I think that's really cool. I really like that twist. And I really like also the way in which it then like feels like, you know, this kind of like chosen family or found family narrative. It does. It really right? kind of does. And that, like all of these people, right, they come together because they're like devoted to protecting this kid. They have no real connection otherwise, uh, you know, to like familial connection to each other. They have no connection, fami- like familial connection to this child. They're just like this group of people who all, yeah, kind of like band together mm-hmm. and again yeah, become this kind of family. Yeah. Who now are like, you know, like they're gonna like raise, like, you know, they're gonna like raise his kid now. Yeah. And Willow goes home because he has his own kids to take care of. But yeah. like, I wonder what happened to Rue and Franchi. And I don't think we saw them in the last no, scene. No, I, I don't think we did. Yes, yeah, so I don't know what happened. Maybe we to did, them. but I don't, I don't know if they went home. I don't remember. Yeah, but I and I actually like also that that Willow goes home. That he's like, this was the thing that was important to me to do. I've done it, and now like I've got a family and a farm. I'm gonna go do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I think- and I, I really liked all that, and I like the the like non toxic masculinity, as I was saying before. It's right? True, that like yeah. we have this like male main character whose arguably most useful skill over the course of the film is that he knows how to take care of a baby. Yep. I think, I think I'm going to give it a 4.5 as well, just because of all the reasons we just said. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. This is great. It's a fun movie. I, yeah, I, yeah, people should watch it. It's fun. Right. And also, you know, I'll add as well, of course, the fact that like they, you know, I think it's great that like they actually hired actors who are people with dwarfism and that they're like developed fully characters. Mm-hmm. It's clearly part of the, you know, dynamic of this world, right? That they're like presented as probably a different species or something than the Daikini. Right. But yeah. that like they, you know, within that, right, they're, you know, like they're their own people, right? And they have different, like they have differentiated skills and uh, yep. personalities. Yeah. At, at one point, very early on, uh, Willow describes the Daikini to his children as a race of giants who live far away. And I also think that was cool that, I mean, I guess we do first see like Queen Beth Morda, right? But I also think it's so interesting that the first time we get, and I think actually like the only time that we get an, an overt explanation of the difference between these races or species or whatever we want to call them in the context of the film is exclusively from the Nelbin's perspective. Yeah. 
it's fun. Um, yeah, yeah, <laughs> it, I really it, like that. It's good. It's yeah, yeah, and very much kind of flips right these sort of obvious, you know, the obvious, which would be like the Daikini are like able-bodied uh, people, and therefore they are the standard. And then the Melwin are like perceived through their eyes, and instead we get the opposite. I think that's cool. Yeah. So yeah, awesome. So Elizabeth, thank you so much for coming back. It's always a great time. I, I hope we can do this again soon. Of course. And are there places where the listeners could find you on the internet? Yes. Yes, actually. Um, I've got a Twitter. I tweet occasionally, very rarely. I'm at Lizzie Strider on Twitter. More notably, probably, is... After three and a half years away, I have broken down and gotten a Tumblr again. Hey. So, so I am shadow academic on Tumblr. Awesome. And I mostly do things about literary analysis and um, talking about the fan fiction that I'm writing. Um, and hopefully by the time this episode goes up, I will have uh, published chapters of that fan fiction instead of just like the massive amount of pre-writing I've been doing but you know follow my tumblr and you can get updates on that awesome yeah thank you so much and uh if you've enjoyed then this podcast you can subscribe in your preferred podcatcher app uh rate and review on apple podcasts I'll read new five-star reviews in future episodes please also follow the podcast on twitter at medieval pod and join our facebook group and you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Sarah If Decker. If you have any questions or suggestions, I'd also love to hear from you via email at media.evilpod at gmail.com. So Elizabeth, thank you again. It's, it's always great to be here. Thank you. And thank you all for listening to Media Evil. Bye. Bye. The next great adventure. You are great.